Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head to head to see which one does it better on this episode. In the red corner... The groundhog is a rodent belonging to the group of large ground squirrels known as marmots. They live in lowland areas and are mostly herbivorous, eating primarily wild grasses and other vegetation including berries and agricultural cops. They also control time, as Bill Murray finds out when one such magical rat traps him in the same day over and over again from 1993. It's Groundhog Day. Bill's about to find out... He's not just stuck in Puxatawney. Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? Chance of departure today, 100%. He's stuck... (laughs) In Groundhog Day. I'm reliving the same day over and over. While in the blue corner, to quote Charles Dickens, in a word, I was too cowardly to know what I knew to be right, as I had been too cowardly to avoid doing what I knew to be wrong. Not to badmouth Dickens, but that is more than a word, idiot. But forgive and forget as Tom Cruise learns how to stop being a coward and smash up some alien scum again and again in 2014's Edge of Tomorrow slash Live, Die, Repeat. You see, this isn't the first time. Now, we've had this conversation. I'm not a soldier. Of course you're not. You're a weapon. So what connects these two movies and which one does it better? Let's find out! It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken. Hello, Clash Potters. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. And as you just heard this week, we are doing Edge of Tomorrow slash Live, I Repeat versus Groundhog Day. Who picked these movies? I picked these movies. Would you like to come up with a funny link between the pair of them? <laughs> yeah, I've got to. Right. Well, after that invitation, <laughs> yeah. how can I say no? Let's call it what it is. <laughs> also, I just wanted to apologise because I used to hate this bit and now I really like it. Yeah. So, Trust me. Yeah, it just shows you can change your mind. Okay, here we go. Ready? Have you I got haven't, your hand up? I haven't done funny ones this week. I've done serious ones. Huh? Well, okay. we'll go funny first and right. then... Wait, here's my first one ready, but like, think about it. Okay. Are they memorable time travel movies? Do you get it? Yeah. Okay, next Are you going to do a funny one though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, time travel movies that don't star Rachel McAdams. <laughs> she's in all the other ones. Oh. Is she? Yeah, yeah, she is. Yeah, the astronaut's wife. 
Yeah, um, time travel about time. Time travel's wife. Time travel's wife. She went into space one. Is that a Johnny Depp one? That's yeah. a Johnny Depp one where he comes back an alien. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was the book, but it's just two things, isn't it? What? There's a book, a really famous book, but is that the time? Mm, boring, 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 boring. <laughs> See, this bit is boring. I was right. Wait, I got some. I got some. Uh, okay. Is it that both of our protagonists wake up at exactly 6 a.m. when the day restarts? Good spot. Okay. Is it... Got another one. Is it that both films were made by people with, let's call it, a maverick approach to filmmaking in Doug Liman and Bill Murray? Yeah. Okay, okay. I've got a final one. I've got a final one. Is it this... Reader, reader, reader. Reader, 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 reader. <laughs> no. Nope. Oh, did, did you? Is that you singing? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Bless you. Please thinking, say yes. Please say yes. Thinking <laughs> I had a voice like silk. Uh, no, that's uh, a guy who I probably should credit. Uh, it's called The Guy Who Sings Your Name Over and Over on oh, YouTube. Wow. Oh, you tell nice. him your name and he makes a song out of it. And he did Rita and I found it and that's that. Oh, so you didn't pay him for that? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. God. No, but don't don't say that because probably should have done it. <laughs> um, well... Because it is Groundhog Day this week, uh, I picked uh, two films where history repeats itself, essentially. So we've got, quite obviously, Groundhog Day and Edge of Tomorrow. So who did I give Groundhog Day to? Me. Go for it, If Vicky. it counts as a comedy, which I think it does. Just to, just to clarify that, in case you understood the Rita thing. Just, yeah. I did, but I'd totally forgotten. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Andy McDowell's called Rita and Emily yeah. Burns called Rita. That's yeah. weird, isn't it? Okay, I just didn't want anyone to go, what the fuck was that? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I should Pull your weight, Chris. Okay, are you ready? Now, I want you to think about this because it's actually pretty clever. That's the second time you said this already <laughs> in this podcast. I just, Do we not normally think? I just feel like I'm going to have a good week. Also, <laughs> I really think it should be left to other people to judge how clever it is. I don't think you should prefix everything with, by the way, this is fucking clever. Well, let's see, shall we? See if you get it or not. Ready? Okay. Yesterday, I watched Groundhog Day and I hated it, so I went to bed. Then yesterday, I watched Groundhog Day and I actually quite liked it and I went to bed. Then yesterday, I watched Groundhog Day again. I loved it. And I went to bed and I woke up today and now I'm here. <laughs> I want it. That's right. We should have done The Astronaut's Wife. <laughs> Excellent. Did you like it? Mm. I did. That was, okay. that was special. Thank you. Thank you. Weatherman Phil Connors. He's stuck. Groundhog Day! In Groundhog Day. Well, it's Groundhog Day. Again? To get what his heart wants most. What are you looking for, Phil? A date for the weekend? Means living this day over again. <laughs> till he gets it right. Believe it or not, I studied 19th century French poetry. <laughs> what a waste of time. I studied 19th century French poetry. La fille qui j'aimera. You speak French. Oui. Um, so I'm going to assume that a lot of people have seen this film um, because it's part of my childhood nostalgia. Did you guys see it when it came out? I'm taking it for granted you. this was a cinema trip for you. It was, actually. It's mm. one of the few group cinema trips me and my friends took when we weren't tabletop mm. wargaming. We actually went to see this. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Sorry, nothing. So it was written by uh, Danny Rubin and Harold Ramis, who also worked on the script. He directed it. Uh, Danny Rubin wanted to write about someone immortal and what that would be like for that person. Um, and I believe he was writing it in January, and so he wanted to claim a holiday to sort of give it a bit more... 
um, memorability. Is that a right word? No. No? Fine. And the next public holiday, which we don't have, is Groundhog Day. So there you go. But I don't think it was a big thing at the time in the US. I think it became something after this movie. He literally just found it in a calendar and it was like, right, that'll do. Yeah, I know know way too much about the writing of this film because I've written a book called how to write Groundhog Day really? by Danny Rubin. I've now read it twice because I reread it for this podcast where he's I didn't got. Know that. Wait, he's got. Is that a uh, joke? No, no, that one's not a joke. Right. Uh, he, it's very he, clever. <laughs> he sort of tops and tails it with talking about the, the behind the scenes stuff, but also in the middle of it, he's got his original script, the one that the spec script that he wrote okay. with all the differences I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. But um, yeah, you're right so far. Oh, great. Okay. Good. Good to know. No <laughs> I don't, pressure. I don't. I've, do you not feel a little bit uncomfortable, Vicky, that he picked a movie yeah. that he's read a book twice about? Uh, yeah. I think we may see Tilly Trivia jump the shark this week. <laughs> well, if that's the end of Tilly Trivia, I suppose we'll have to learn to move on. <laughs> Go out on a low. So then we've got Bill Murray, apparently after Tom Hanks turned it down. Is that right? Uh, that didn't come up in the book. He didn't talk about any other casting, but I have I have read that a few places. So that's a long way of saying that's correct, Vicky. Uh, that, mm. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah, I, um, I guess I guess the thinking with Tom Hanks was that as soon as you see him, you know he'll end up being good. Yeah. Whereas with Bill Murray, it's more of a doubt because he is slightly. Uh, Harold Ramis says on the commentary, "There's a nasty side of Bill uh, that he wasn't afraid to show in this film, mm. um, on and off camera, apparently." Yeah, and he said, and he also says, "Bill understands vanity and self-centeredness." Okay, so yeah, it's I mean, a sly dig. He's I, playing himself. Essentially. I didn't hear about the Tom Hanks thing um, until researching it this time, but I had heard about the Michael Keaton thing because mm. Michael Keaton was actually offered it and then turned it down because he didn't understand the script. Okay, and he's since said, obviously, he regretted that, but. He did get to work with Harold Ramis and Andy McDowell later on Multiplicity, which is obviously the classic lose-lose scenario. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So then you've got Bill Murray and Harold Ramis reunited, a very successful partnership um, that we've seen in Caddyshack, Stripes, and a little indie that I'm fond of called Ghostbusters. Um, although they did fall out after this and they didn't, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis, and they didn't speak again until Harold Ramis was dying, which is terrible. Yeah, um, the Harold Ramis quote, which is, he describes uh, Bill Murray on this movie, and this is an actual quote, as really irrationally mean and unavailable, which, strong words. Although I did think, you don't know you're having a lifelong argument until you've had a lifelong argument, do you? Like, mm. I'll never speak to you again. We'll see. So, you know, I think it's clear from 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 Danny Rubin talking about it, from Stephen Tobolowski talking about making this film, Harold Ramis. I think he was going through a divorce or a messy breakup, Bill Murray. And I just think he was in a very, very bad headspace. He also felt like he was making a very different film to the one that Rubin had written or Ramis was directing. And so he sort of he took Rubin away with him to a hotel for a week and, they, and rewrote the script with mm. him. And I think there was just a lot of pushing and pulling over what the tone of this film should be. Yeah, because Ramis wanted it to be a romantic comedy and yeah. Bill Murray wanted to be wanted it to be, which sort of, I imagine, fits with, if you're going through a divorce at the time, something far more philosophical yeah. and musing on life and the point of existence. An yeah. existential drama. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And mm. repetition and what is the point mm. making an impact. But I do think a lot of it is Murray. Like, you know, we talked about it when we did uh, the Scrooge episode and he has a unique way of making a film. And uh, Dan Aykroyd, who obviously has worked with him numerous times, uh, says he has mood swings and Dan Aykroyd refers to him as the Murricane. <laughs> I quite like. Uh, Bill Murray says, I only got this reputation from people I didn't like working with or people who didn't know how to work or what work is. Jim, Wes and Sophia, they know what work is and they understand how you're supposed to treat people. 
Jim Jarmusch, Wes Anderson, and Sophia Coppola, I believe. So I'm going to assume that the, I mean, we don't really need to talk about the plot too much. Is that all right to say? But I will just sort of run through the headline point. Sounds good. So Bill Murray is Phil Connors and Phil Connors is a snarky, jaded weatherman sent to a small town called Punxsutawney uh, to begrudgingly cover the Groundhog Day ceremony. And as Alex has said, that's like a big rat that hmm. decides how long winter's going to last. <laughs> uh, he's not into it. And then he has to relive the same day over and over again until he somehow, with no clues, no guidance, but he's he has to get it right. And then we see the same day with him. We see the same day in the film, I believe, but Chris will definitely correct me, um, 38 times. But I've heard he's meant to be living that day for about 10 years. Well, Ramis said originally 10 years, and then he altered his answer later and said it's probably more like 30 or 40 years. Okay. Although at the time... There was talk. I think Danny Rubin uh, originally wanted it to be 10,000 years in his original script. And Harold Ramis Ramis played on that because he's a Buddhist. Mm. And for a soul to actually improve and actually be reborn as a better soul takes 10,000 years. (laughs) Good luck. Mm. Rubin wanted it to be what he said he wrote. He didn't want to put a number on it, but he he felt like he should have been there for more than one lifetime, right. is how he put it. To learn how to live a better life, you need to have been there a lifetime. So that would effectively be sort of 70, 80 years. Um, the studio wanted it, the notes the studio gave was, we want it to be two weeks he's been stuck there. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> we don't want it to be too extreme. Um, and I don't know if... You, uh, <laughs> then there's just like a bad holiday. But you say that, like 10,000 years, when you watch the movie and imagine that that has been going on for 10,000 years, it does add an element of pure misery and depression to the whole process. Mm. Like you can't enjoy it as much if you think this has been going on that long. And and in that original script, he had quite a clever way of uh, Bill Murray recording how many days he'd been there because, of course, if you write it down each day, it's going to disappear the next day. So he, he couldn't keep a note of the days. Right. And it's quite. It'd probably be quite hard to remember after hundreds and hundreds. So he there was a there was a library in town, and each day he would go to the library and we'd read one page of a book. Right. And so he would count it by the amount of books he's read, and it started off with one book. You know, three hundred. That might be one year. Okay. And then it you'd slowly it would sort of pan out, and you'd see that he's read one bookcase, several bookcases, a whole wall, mm. and that's how they recorded it. But it was Ramis who took that out of it. And that was that was how they settled on the fact that actually we're going we're never going to give a number. Yeah, that to me is one of the best things about it is what the script hides from you. So I've got some feedback and I've split it into three sections as per my intro. Uh, hated it, lukewarm, loved it. Are you interested to hear that? I'll be super quick. It's like bullet points, right? Hated it. Feels very long. Not enough laughs. Ice sculpture face. Bad. When I felt lukewarm <laughs> about it, it feels timeless. And Bill Murray is okay. And then when I loved it. I was thinking about the philosophical outlook and then what is not said in the script and the fact that there isn't a reason for why this is happening to him. So there was a gypsy curse in and that was taken out and it's just... Well, that one's, that's the interesting one because that was forced on Danny Rubin uh, by the studio. They were like, look, we don't, we don't like you just sort of dropping him into the action so quickly because I think initially it started. The original script had him already in his Groundhog Day. It, it started on, in, in Danny's mind, it started on day 365. Right. But he was already in the time loop and then you gradually, as the audience, sort of discovered what the hell was going on. And it's really funny, actually. So he does, it's, a lot of it's told via voiceover. Mm. So he's going around, he's punching Ned Ryerson, he's, he's, he's doing all these things in town and you don't know what's going on. But over the, in the voiceover, he's saying, you know, you won't get it yet, but trust me, stick with this. 
I know what's going on. You'll see soon. And, and the studio were like, no, we want something that brings our audience with you, a sort of classic, yeah. sort of romantic comedy, supernatural intro. And they uh, asked him to write that. And so what Danny Rubin ended up writing was... Phil unceremoniously dumps his girlfriend Stephanie at the very start of the movie. Uh, and then, as he's going to bed in Punxsutawney, we see Stephanie in her room using Phil's business cards and a broken watch set at 5.59am to perform a magical spell from a book titled 101 Curses, Spells and Enchantments You Can Do at Home. <laughs> and that sets it in motion, an embittered ex-girlfriend with a little book. Okay. Well, there's another there's another thing that he wrote in in this book, How to Write Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. He actually says he wrote a different scene, and I feel like do you, you know you hear sometimes that people purposely write a bad scene because they know it'll be taken out. It's your classic negotiating tactic. So the studio uh, were suggesting it was a scientific invention, a cosmic anomaly, a magical encounter, an ancient artifact, a wronged girlfriend at the TV station. Or a magical clockmaker. He wrote a scene <laughs> where... Uh, wait, go back. What was the last one? <laughs> a magical clockmaker. Brilliant. Where's that? <laughs> we'll use that. Let's use that on something we write. Um, but actually, what he ended up writing was that night in Puxatawney, Phil pissing off a gypsy in a queue for an Iron Maiden gig. What? Which is so, like, doesn't make sense for the rest of this story that I just feels like he, he just thought, what is the shittest thing I can write? <laughs> so he pushes in front of this gypsy woman because he's the the weatherman, the news guy, gets into this gig and she's upset with him and he just kind of laughs in her face. So it's like, drag me to hell. Yes. Right. <laughs> cool. Ex- except shitter because that made a bit more sense in drag me to hell, didn't it? I don't know. I don't know. I feel sorry for the girl in drag me to hell. I always so have. Yeah, it's really mean. Really mean. You shamed me. You shamed me. Get over it. But yes, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, brilliantly, they didn't have any explanation for it, which yep. is part of the success of this film. Definitely. Definitely, definitely. So he's stuck in a time loop and he goes through the stages. Well, I mean, people like to talk about it, stages of enlightenment, but you can just come along for the entertaining ride. When he first realises, or more or less when he first realises what's going on, he sort of chases after pleasure, which is completely understandable because there are no consequences. So he's going to do what he likes, um, which involves... Crashing a car? Is that right? Yeah, I really like this. Sequence. Oh, and eating cake. This is the no consequences bit at yeah. the start. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he does uh, he does do the car crashing, and he sits with uh, the two guys in the bar, and it's those two guys in the bowling alley who basically go. Yeah, and because that is one of the best lines in it, where he says to that guy, "What would you do if you were stuck in the same place every day, doing exactly the same thing, and nothing you did really mattered?" And the guy goes, "Well, that about sums it up for me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. Really do. Um, then once he gets over that, have I got this in the right order? Then he decides he's gonna like he needs to have sex with Rita, um, and so <laughs> that's basically it, isn't it? And so yeah, I struggled with that, and I, it was only this time watching it because normally I'm along for the ride, but because we have to analyze these bloody movies mm, now, it nightmare. rips all the fun out of them. <laughs> um, but seriously, I was sort of like he, he says quite far into it, like uh, from the first time I met you, I knew I wanted to hold you, and it's not a joke, and he's not trying to hit on her at that point. He's genuinely saying from the first time I saw you. I wanted to hold you. And you're like, I don't know. It's sort of like, he just seems bored. And <laughs> she's the nicest person in town. She's so nice. She well, he's, also, so he, he's also slept with most of the other women in town that yeah. are available by figuring out what high school they went to and mm. what drink they like. And if you know that information, women will definitely sleep with Apparently, you. Apparently that's Even all if it you takes. look like Bill Murray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So delete those Facebook profiles, girls. <laughs> uh, but she won't shag him. Um, 
despite his best efforts, despite him memorising her drink, which is um, sweet vermouth on the rocks with a twist. Apparently Harold Ramis's wife's favourite drink, which is why it's included and is disgusting. It's disgusting. Where's the fucking gin? The minute she ordered it, I was like, do you mean a martini, idiot? <laughs> I found it a bit of a turn-off as well when you found out what she likes to toast when she drinks. World peace. World peace. <laughs> Piss off, woman. <laughs> and like that's making him fall further in love with her. No, it's not. You run a mile when someone says that. But this is the thing. This is why it doesn't add up. Because when, like, the real him is brilliant and like the fake him is so obviously fake and I guess by the end we're supposed to believe he sort of found a happy medium where he's not quite as cruel but when she goes um, he goes did you study like filmmaking journalism at university he goes no I studied 19th century French poetry and he goes what a waste of time and, and she's like and then he's like I mean for someone else that would be an incredible waste of time but uh, and it's just like that's funny it is. That's one of the best lines, isn't it? And that's when he's supposed to be learning all the tricks. So it shows you that he hasn't changed at all because that's his first reaction is to call it a waste of time, which, you know, possibly mm. it is. Um, <laughs> but then after that, after she won't sleep with him, there's a lot of uh, montage of nothing he does works and she slaps his face as a sort of coda to those scenes. Like, So this is not working. Mm. Then he becomes super depressed about everything and tries to kill himself multiple times. And that's the beginning of his redemption because he can't kill himself it doesn't work mm. and then he tells Rita the truth and she believes him and that they have a really nice day together she seems to want to spend time with him and that's when you start the arc of he's going to do nice things for other people mm. and sort of build towards becoming a better person yeah and the snowball fight is one of the most memorable scenes for me where it's the second time round. <laughs> second one's brilliant. <laughs> where he's trying to recreate this yeah. perfect moment that yeah. they had. And he's he's rushing it and he's like screaming, are you any of you up for adoption? <laughs> and it's the bit where in the first time they sort of naturally collapse into the snow next to each other and it's beautiful. And the second time, because he's trying to get the perfect position yeah. just like yeah. the first time. She moves away. And he keeps just re-angling himself, <laughs> shuffling, trying to remember exactly how he was. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, there was one scene that didn't make it into the film that was very funny in the book where he's trying to kill the uh, groundhog. Oh, and Because right. he, he just thinks, well, maybe that will that will fix it all if I kill this frigging groundhog. Mm. And so he's chasing it around and you see a bunch of different versions of him killing it. But it's exactly the same as Caddyshack, so they had to take it out. <laughs> Once they cast Bill Murray, they said, we can't have him chasing a little creature around trying to kill it. <laughs> um I like the scene where uh, they have some fun as well with if you know what's going to happen on a day. Uh, the scene where he's sitting with the old people watching Jeopardy. Oh, that's my favourite. And he knows all the answers. <laughs> and that once kind of happened to me. I got back from the pub with my mate Springy and he's quite competitive. What Can I ask why he's called Springy? Because it's a Wait, let nickname. me guess. Is his last name Springer? No. Oh, wow. Is it because he's really bouncy like Tigger in Winnie the Pooh? He is quite bouncy. No, he, he's really boy. He played for a hockey club called Springfield and we met through hockey. Can we think of a better reason? <laughs> 100%. No, the Tigger one works. <laughs> and he's a competitive lad like me. We were a bit pissed and I said to him, this is terrible, the question of sport was on the telly and I said, I bet you £10 I beat you at this. And okay. he's like, all right. And so we did it and he beat me and it was only a week later he told me it was a repeat. <gasps> He'd seen the episode and he knew every answer. <laughs> To the point that he was getting them wrong on purpose because he was beating me to too throw, easily. To throw you off. <laughs> you bastard. That's so brilliant. That scene I love. Bloody springy. I know, Cla it's classic spring. Classic him. Classic he's so spring. like that. I don't think Vicky was pointing out that scene was her favourite because of that. But am I right in thinking it's one of my favourite scenes as well because he's watching a game show in pyjamas drinking Jack Daniels from the bottle. 
DT Pop. <laughs> and when he's talking about what would be your perfect day, it's like, that's my perfect yeah. day. Like, Look, can you read that from here? I wrote, live in the dream. Yeah. <laughs> just, Living the dream. It seems dream. so perfect. Just nice company and it's calm and you're smashing it at Jeopardy. Although that old lady, when he says one of the answers before the question's been asked and he looks at her yeah. really aggressively while he says the answer. And that's the whole um, ending of, have you seen Starter for 10? Yes. Yeah, that's the ending of that film. The whole film is yeah, all yeah. based around that. Uh, but you ask a good question there, Vicky. Is there a day that you would like to repeat over and over again that you've lived? Oh, so not a made-up day? No. A real day? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> does Mark listen to this? No, he does not. Okay, no, good. So. Doesn't have to be about Mark then. Yeah, it was the time I spent a whole day with another man. <laughs> it, was, it was quite something. <laughs> Did you do a comedy eyebrow raise at me then? <laughs> Hello. Every day I have with Mark is perfect. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Is, is there a day? Is there a day? Well, Vicky thinks of one. Well, I still want one. No, I was quite interested in Bill Murray's perfect day, where he's talking about meeting that girl on a tropical island, and he goes, uh, "What does he say?" He says something like, "We ate lobster." Yes. Um, oh, and we made love <laughs> like sea otters. So I remember hearing that and going, "God, but that's sexy." Uh, just for the record, I looked up what a sea otter sounds like when it's having sex. <laughs> Why is there only one noise? Well, there's only one sea otter in it. I mean, I think that the other sea otter is passive. Why? Well, it's a, I didn't want to actually put. Stop a, doing it! Stop doing it! It's an animated sea otter. <laughs> just if only one person's making a noise, they're not doing it right. <laughs> Uh, you both deflected that question quite nicely, so congratulations to the do pair you, of you. Do you have one? Well, probably today. Oh, that's really sweet. What about I love Christmas Day. Christmas Day is do a perfect you? day. I genuinely do. It's a perfect day for me. I love Christmas Day. I also like... A particular one or just Christmas Day? Just Christmas Day. <laughs> just they're always good. So you were asked if you would like to relive one day and you're picking every Christmas. Every Christmas? Mm. Um, Ooh, I like I my own birthday. But b- Borrowing Vicky's idea, the day I got uh, 19, I want to say 1987... Mm. Uh, maybe a bit early in 86. Well, it was the year I got loads of Star Wars toys, including an Atat Walker, and it was the best Christmas ever. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, an Atat Walker. I still Oh, my God, I've just the, remembered a brilliant day I had one. The guns at the front that still moved. Me and my friend went to the yep, Alton Towers sorry. Hotel, and then you can get into the theme park before everyone else. That was a good day. And we were grown up, so afterwards we could have drinks. It was really good. <laughs> that's so cute. I know, honestly. Can you imagine what it's like? To go to Alton Towers and there's no queues yep. for anything. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, that must be amazing. <laughs> oh, is that a perk of your job? Yeah, done that. <laughs> Been to Alcatraz before it was opened. Walked around Alcatraz at like five in the morning. It was great. That's not a theme park, okay? And it's uh, dismissive. They make it feel like a theme park when <laughs> you're there. Yeah, yeah. Have they got piped noises of people screaming? Yeah. It's, on the head- it's on your headphones when really? you go around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've got people uh, reenacting the voice of the guards. Well, this prisoner was pretty bad. Let me tell you a story. Okay. Yeah. Mine would be the 1997 Championship Playoff Final. Oh, good. That day. God, God. 1997. Yeah. Yeah. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let me, let me think. 1997. So was that it, would be. <laughs> was it Sheffield United? Yes, it was, Vicky. Oh, well, Funny yeah. you should ask. Against Crystal Palace. That was a really. And David Hopkins scored with two minutes to go, a rocket in the top corner. And did Crystal Palace win? Crystal Palace win, went in the Premiership, and I was surrounded by my friends and family at Wembley watching it and had just a lovely day and a lovely night. Oh, that is nice. It would be a good day to to, to relive. Yeah, it but then really it would, would suck the joy out of it. So actually, you don't I guess I would it. know the goal. It'd be very exciting knowing the goal's coming. Or well, the question Put is this: 
if you were to relive that day, like, are you aware that you're reliving it or not? Because that's the big thing. Mm. Because if you're aware oh, yeah, that you're you reliving it, so you are. Well, then I think you'd end. That's up the being... plot of Groundhog Day. Did you not pick that up on that? Yeah, I know. I was just, <laughs> I was just practicing, sort of like uh, working through ideas okay. and and spitballing. Okay. Um, so I think you'd end up being disappointed. Mm-hmm. I don't think you should. I think because... well, it's like... well. I mean, that's the point of the film. I would say, mm-hmm. you know, you're always gonna. It's always gonna end up. Well, you'll go through think, different emotions. I don't won't think that's you? the point of the film. The point of the film is becoming a better person by I know, being but... a taught a le- taught a lesson by by who 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 does this to Phil? A gypsy. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but you go does those... anyone have a theory? Because I know it's not really addressed. In it's the movie. The, Do you the, think it's the groundhog? No, it's the plight of all human experience. It's everyone at the same time. Yeah, but who does it to Phil? Why does he get trapped in there, this time there's loop? There's a theory online. Ooh, is it that, my theory? I came up with a brand new one, so if this is that theory... Do yours first. No, do yours first. Uh, the, uh, it's Ned Ryson controlling it all. Oh. <laughs> Ned Ryson's the devil, and it's only at the end when uh, Phil accepts what Ned Ryson is, is saying and buys life insurance off him. <laughs> which he does on the final day <laughs> that he breaks the spell. Wow. <laughs> although that theory doesn't work because they bump into Ned Ryerson. Oh, although you don't know, they bump into him after he's bought life insurance because the moment you know that the loop is broken is when it starts to snow when they kiss and you can see Bill Murray sort of look at him and go, this doesn't normally happen. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, that's when it starts to snow and it's the same thing in It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So that's not my theory. My theory is the person in charge of trapping Bill Murray in this time loop is the cop who he speaks to when they're trying to drive out mm-hmm. of Punxsutawney and the blizzard comes in and the cop says to him, uh, he's like, I want to get out of here. And he goes, no, you can go back to Punxsutawney or you can go ahead and freeze to death. In hell. Emotionally. Oh, right. <laughs> Okay. So I'm thinking the cop is like, there's something about that cop. When you watch it, there's a sort of aura to him. He's a very intense cop. And I think he's saying, I'm telling you, go back to Punxsutawney and work this shit out about yourself. He's an angel, sort Mm. of. Mm. But also, on a more serious note, isn't it a better experience if you accept that it's no one's fault because yes. you can't put blame absolutely on your not, no. your miserable yeah. fucking life uh, you, onto someone else? Absolutely, you can and you should. Um, don't ever, sorry, not to not to say you're wrong, but if anyone uh, out there is sort of thinking this is my fault, it's not. It's definitely someone else's, and you point the finger as much as possible. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, towards the end of the film, there is a bachelor auction. There is. <laughs> Which is quite a funny scene. Uh, the, the character that Chris uh, uh, what's it, Chris Elliott plays, Chris Elliott, yeah. that's quite funny. Um, Vicky. Yeah. What oh, would, nervous. So what, nervous. What would, Why don't you like it when he says Vicky? I just don't like it when anyone says It's going to be a leading question. Because people don't really often say my name, All right. do they? Like, Victoria. That's worse. Mm. <laughs> Go on. Uh, what, anything's better than Lady V. I'm glad, that's, <laughs> I'm glad that stopped being a thing. Can I just say how pleased I am that you've stopped that? It is funny. I listened back to an episode and he says it, but he's looking at me and you do like look, you genuinely wretch and mm. it is quite it's funny. just... <laughs> don't, don't do it now to prove a point. LV. LV. <laughs> um... What would you bid on Alex Zane and what would you bid on Chris Tilly? Is it for charity? Yeah. Oh, well, then Lords, because it goes to charity. No, who I don't think... Bi- who would you bid more go. on? Let's, let's, let's cut to the chase. He's not just asking, would you bid? Oh, right, sorry. He's looking for a bit of an ego massage that you might bid more on him. Who would you rather spend uh, a day with? <laughs> this is getting weird. Who would you rather spend just more... More time, time like just one on, either, one on one. Who is going to make an ice sculpture of my face? I think is the first question. <laughs> and that's a bad thing by your. That you <laughs> yeah, don't, do you want that or not want that? Do you know that 
think it's the weirdest thing you've ever seen in your life. And also talking about, oh, if you know where a woman went to school, she'll sleep with you. If you know this, you know. The scene where he tries to convince Andy McDowell to sleep with him, I do find extremely troubling because he tries to woo her with like creature comforts. He's like, we have a fire and I've got a book and I've got some ice cream. But these are and all her favourite things that she's clearly yeah, mentioned but previously. It's no mention in that scene of um, their joint or her sexual pleasure. So he's trying to get... So do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that is like women can't, women don't have sex for pleasure. Therefore, access to their bodies can be withheld and therefore negotiated or taken. And we, we can't be having any of that for I, obvious reasons. I, I found the, the Nancy scene when they're canoodling by mm. the uh, fake fire more troubling because he calls her Rita yeah. and she's mm. like, whoa, who the fuck is Rita? What mm-hmm. are you doing? And then... He says, I love you. I've always loved you. Will you marry me? Yeah. And, and that then, works. And that makes he, her more horny. Right. Then, mm, then he weird. calls her Rita again. And she's like, she's like, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah. Because, yeah. because apparently now that he's committed to marriage, <laughs> yeah. he can fucking call her what he likes. Yeah. yeah which is not, that's a not joke, how it goes. That's a joke that I don't think worked then and now is dated <laughs> very badly. Yeah. But even at the end, if you were on essentially the first date you've ever had with someone and they're like, Ta-da! Ice sculpture! And then they say, and I've always loved you. You'd be like, listen, it really is getting quite late, so I thought I might go and never, ever, ever ring you or see you ever again because this is fucking terrifying. You know what I think? It annoys me that she's like, oh, I've had a declaration of love. That's just what I always wanted. Is it the combination of the declaration with the ice sculpture, though? I mean... On its its own, are you sort of open to love declarations? On the first date? Yeah. No. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. I don't think anyone is a normal person. No, that's fine. Would you like... I mean... You're not writing this down. (laughs) What's your favourite drink again, Nikki? (laughs) (laughs) Was that... Was that... I know. I actually know. It's a large, crisp white wine. <laughs> That's what you said to me. I do like a crisp. It's got to be a crisp one. Oh, what yeah. what do I she say? Did, no, she didn't. She said white wine and a packet of crisps. <laughs> no. Who wants a brackish, warm, mm. muddy wine? But then I had to go to the bar and say, "Have you got any crisp wine here?" <laughs> did you really? Oh, you should have. I was taking, I was taking the piss out of you and while then, I was doing it. When did it stop? Ble- when did it stop being blue? WKD. <laughs> <laughs> Um, would you like to know the ending in the original script, which uh, has a twist? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really I know this. It's good. It's really interesting. So they wake up that last that, that next day next to each other in bed, and Phil is over the moon saying much of the same things. We're going to and, she, and she's very nice. She's pretty happy about it. And they come down to breakfast, and eventually she just she says something quite rude, like I've had enough of this, something like that. Mm-hmm. The twist is that next day, Rita ends up repeating. Cool. So every day she wakes up having just slept with Phil next to him. Okay. And has to pretend that she, she, she's not in love with him or she's not sure if she's in love with him. Yeah. But he had he's had all those days to fall fully in love with her. She's just had that one day exactly. where she likes him. Yeah. And so the ending is is her stuck in uh, purgatory, essentially. Which is a nice twist, but isn't the feel-good ending that, you know, helped make this a huge success. She, uh, she has a very specific... Uh... Waste cult. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Or if you're if you're in America, they call that a vest. A vest. <laughs> she is. Um, she wants. She knows what she wants from a man. Uh, oh, she does. Yeah. She does want a, a, a man who will change poopy diapers. Mm. To which Phil says, "Does he have to say poopy?" It's vile. It's and so winsome. It's annoying. Do you like her character though? Um, with a bit of distance from the film, I do. But when I'm watching it, I do find it a bit like a bit uh, so sweet that it makes my teeth. Uh, jangle a bit like she's just 
so cute and so lovely and is nice to everyone all the time. And her long description of what she wants in a man, unless she's taking the piss, is ridiculous and irritating. Like, he needs to be brave and love his mom and like animals. It's like, who... And I, as much as I say it's unfair for men to put unrealistic expectations on women, I, I think it goes both ways. Like, mm. this man that she's describing would be... It doesn't exist and would mm. be boring if he did exist. And I don't know why, you, why a grown woman projects that sort of thing onto people. Do you think it's written by men who aren't that <laughs> kind of man <laughs> to yeah. basically go, this is unrealistic to expect this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then, you know, over uh, with a bit of time, so she, she needs to be the nicest person in the world in order for the narrative to work. But mm. it's just a bit of a shame that she doesn't get any edge to her. That final scene you were talking about where they wake up in the bedroom mm. the, the morning after, which still happens in the movie. Apparently one of the biggest... Uh, conversations that had to happen on set was Bill Murray was like, I'm not shooting this, Harold, until you tell me if I'm wearing pyjamas or not in this scene. And Harold Ramis like, hadn't given any thought to this. And so he took a vote from the crew and it was a tie. They weren't sure whether Phil should be wearing pyjamas or not. And I guess it suggests whether or not he had sex with Andy McDowell that night or not. And apparently it was uh, loads of, more than one people corroborate the story that it was a young girl who was the assistant set designer on her first movie who went, if he doesn't have any pyjamas on, it will ruin your fucking movie. <laughs> he has to be wearing pyjamas. And so that's why he's wearing pyjamas. And I agree. It would be sort of like, hmm. Mm. And also it would ruin the reveal as you pull back. Because if he's not wearing pyjamas, you immediately know yeah. that it's a new day. And I oh, think the yeah. thought And of... then the halfway point is top pyjamas, no bottom pyjamas, and that makes you feel <laughs> sick. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'd be doing <laughs> it right now if I could. Up there. I'd be doing it right why, now. If why I do could. you do it? What, what sort of weird, weird, like weird, deviant pleasure boy, do you I, get I think, from that? I think the boy should be free down there. Oh god. Um right, should we should we jump into the things we liked? Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's not, it's not the bit, it's called the bits. What's your favourite scene, Vicky? Uh, you have mentioned it, but the snowball fight with the kids when it's just like, yeah. oh, just so manic and like, you were right up, Jen. I love kids. Like, that's very funny. Al? Uh, I really like the uh, the chase sequence in the pickup truck where Punks Tony Phil is driving and and he's on his lap and he Bill Murray ad-libs the line, don't drive angry, don't drive angry <laughs> because apparently the rat was trying to get out of the van at that point, and uh, shortly after that, it bit him, and he had to have he had to have a rabies injection. Yuck. So, uh, so yeah, that's uh, I do like that scene. I like animals driving cars mainly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like what Ramis calls the Superman sequence when he catches the kid, changes the tire, does the Heimlich maneuver on the mayor, who's his brother in real life. Yeah. And then just after that Heimlich maneuver, I love it. He's walking out. He just lights a woman's cigarette as she's yeah. pulling it out. <laughs> I think that's a really nice little button on the end. That's of that. his brother. He performs the Heimlich maneuver. On? Literally just said he that. Just said oh, that. did you? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I was reading ten seconds ago. Really? <laughs> that was his brother. Uh... <laughs> okay. Okay. MVW, most valuable, whatever. Alex. Mm. Oh wait, I've got one. You know that kid who Good. falls out of the tree? <laughs> yep. No, the thing you just mentioned that wasn't about the brother. The kid who falls out of the tree. If you uh, watch the bit where he takes the old guy to hospital and is informed that he dies, you can see the kid with a broken leg oh, cool. in the hospital waiting room. That's nice. mm. Um from one of the days that Bill Murray didn't catch him. So he doesn't die if he falls out of the tree, which I think, uh, you know, removes the jeopardy from that scene where he catches him. Uh, what was the question, Chris? MVW. Vicky, what's yours? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Ned. <laughs> Ned Ryerson. Um, I just think he's very funny and 
he when Bill Murray repeatedly steps in the puddle, he does look quite gleeful about it. So he's not just this sort of one-sided, like he loves Bill Murray and he wants to reconnect with him. He is delighted that he's stepped in that disgusting puddle. <laughs> that's a doozy! <laughs> Does anyone know where that's a doozy comes from, the expression? No. It's a 1930s, very oh, I was fancy... Say, the war! <laughs> no. All right. Oh, OK. But good, good. I mean, you can wait to hear the answer or you can have another guess. A polls, carry on. It's the 1930s car called a Duesenberg in America, a very fancy car, and it was nicknamed the Doozy. And that's where the expression, it's a Doozy, meaning it's something special. Good fact. I like that. Yeah. I've got even more random one coming up. About uh, cars. Uh, wait, so what was the question? I mean, that's the second time he's done that. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to jump in now because yeah. I've got the same one as Vicky. Mine is Ned Ryerson. Uh, do you know why he's called Ned? No. Uh, the screenwriter was thinking about Ned Beatty when he wrote it. Okay. That was who was in his head. And can I give you just a bit of random trivia that I've always loved that connects Stephen Tobolowsky, the actor who plays Ned Ryerson, with one of the great indie bands of the last 40 years? Yes, you can. So What's the band? Uh, that's the oh, ending. Okay. Um, so he worked with David Byrne of Talking Heads fame mm -hmm. on a movie called T uh, True Stories, which I recently saw for the first time. From 1986, a weird um, comedy musical, bit, a bit kind of David Lynch, Coen Brothers. And while they were writing the script together, he told um, David Byrne that he, growing up, had a psychic ability to hear and read other people's tones. He could walk in a row in a room, he would hear tones that you were admitting, and he, he could tell things about your future. Now, this sounds mad, but Stephen, that actor, believes that. David Byrne liked it so much, he put it into his film, uh, a character having that same ability, and wrote a song about that character called Radiohead. And Radiohead loved that song so much, they named the band after it. And Radiohead is named after Stephen Tobolowsky. Okay. So he's the inspiration. That's for... great. Can I jump on this trivia train Let's right do now? It. Rock and roll. Woo woo. Um, so, Talking Heads, uh, there's another Talking Heads story from the set of this where Bill Murray was on set with his little portable stereo listening to the Talking Heads. And. Uh, Michael Shannon is in this movie, he his is, very yeah. first movie role. <laughs> he plays Fred, the guy who's getting married and then his wife gets cold feet and then they get wrestling tickets at the end. Anyway, he hears Bill Murray listening to Talking Heads and he's like, he wants to say hi to Bill Murray and he goes up to Bill Murray and goes, uh, oh, you like Talking Heads? And then realises what a stupid thing that is to say because Bill Murray's listening to the Talking Heads and Bill Murray goes, yeah, I like the Talking Heads. And Michael Shannon walks off going heartbroken, crestfallen, going, I can't believe I did that. I'm an idiot. And mentions this to Harold Ramis when they're playing pool. He's like, I, I did this thing. I think Bill Murray hates me because I said this. And Harold Ramis is like, you probably just caught him on an off day. Lie, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, but don't worry about it. It's fine. So it comes around two weeks later to the actual scene that Michael's in at the end at the party. And Harold Ramis stops everyone before they shoot the bit with Bill Murray and Michael Shannon goes, everyone, I just want to stop right there. Bill, have you got something you want to say to Michael? And Bill Murray goes, ad verbatim, this is from the lips of like Michael Shannon, um, I like you, Mike. I'm not upset with you. And I'm sorry if you thought I was upset with you. Harold Ramis had made Bill Murray apologise to Michael Shannon. Uh, Michael Shannon said, it was one of the strangest things that ever happened to me. I couldn't believe it. 
I went bright red. No wonder they stopped talking. That's yeah. weird, isn't it? He should have. He should have said like in a, in a fake take. Rather than I got your tickets to WrestleMania, I got I your ticket to the Talking Heads. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone would have laughed. You could have moved it? on. Yeah. Um, Michael does say they met years later at Cannes Film Festival. Murray remembered him. Uh, they were in the bathroom, and then he invited up to his suite to eat cheese together. That's a dream for me, to be honest. <laughs> what would you change in this film? You've, you gave a laundry list of stuff you didn't like. There's, I've got one change, something a little yeah. thing. You know the woman who runs the B&B that Bill Murray's staying at yeah. and every morning she says, did you sleep all right? Yeah. Do you want some coffee? And he's he's either quite rude to her or dismissive, whatever. Just thought one cut, cut back to her as he's left because she says, um, are you checking out today? And he's like, yes, no, whatever. And it would be fun to give her her own moment where she's all like sweetness and light to him and the minute he's out the door, she's like, what a dick. Yes. <laughs> That would be good. I think, uh, a bit like you, I think he is really mean to her because at the very start, the first thing he says, she's like, would you like some coffee? And he's like, any chance of a cappuccino or espresso? And she's like, oh, I I, I don't know. And you hear him mutter, you don't know how to spell espresso or cappuccino, which is just sort of really nasty. Just twisting the knife. Yeah, but I think, Nancy, there needs to be some resolution to her story. Yeah. Towards the end, she's sort of dumped Mm. with Larry, the camera guy, Mm. and like she doesn't like him and... I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't feel yeah. like a satisfactory end for Nancy. Well, actually, uh, I've. Se- I'm a bit of a Groundhog Day super fan, and I've seen the musical, which is fantastic. Um, words by Danny Rubin, songs by Tim Minchin, and um, Nancy does get much more. They've thought about it a lot more. I think they righted any wrongs that they thought were in that script, and she does have a proper story arc in it. Um, and you see stuff from her point of view. They also have songs in that musical called uh, one's called Philandering. Nice. And one's called Philanthropy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my change would be to make Rita uh, more interesting and less bland. Mm, yeah. She's not a particularly exciting uh, love interest. And no. I, f- yeah, I feel like she should have a bit more about her. Did you, did you, are we done with that section? Yeah, for sure. Anyone got any other trivia? Any Tilly trivia? Yeah, if it's our trivia, yeah, it no. doesn't come under the umbrella of Tilly trivia. You know that, right? We could change the name of the section. To what? <laughs> to Tilly Trivia. <laughs> no, uh, I don't think you understand the concept of change. <laughs> it was briefly called No Tomorrow, the film. Um, the studio had the rights to the song One Fine Day and really wanted it to be called One Fine Day so they could use that. And that didn't work out. But obviously, the Clooney, Michelle Pfeiffer film used that title. Mm. And in Brazil, it's called uh, Black Hole of Love. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh, I thought there was, that was something else, but that's fine. There was an Italian remake called Stork Day about uh, Filippo, an Italian TV star who has to go to Tenerife to shoot a, a programme about a local stork and then keeps waking up on the same day. Oh, I thought you meant stork as in, like, stork. Sorry, no, Follows. S-T-O-R-K. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Stork. Mm. Okay. And the makers of a short film from 1990 called 12.01pm uh, tried to sue. And I did watch that short film. It stars Kurtwood Smith who's Bodica in Robocop. And it's a half-hour version. Oh! Of, very similar Wait, to... Bodica? Bodica? Bodica, yeah, Clarence Bodica. Clarence Bodica, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, okay. okay. Uh, it's Groundhog Day, but with all the humour taken out. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's very disturbing, actually, okay. very depressing, hmm. but um, very similar. <laughs> but they decided it would be too expensive to sue these, this studio, so they yeah. just gave up. Just leave it. Walk away. Any more for any more? Um, no, I think, that's, I think I'm done with that. Hold up, what was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, all you need is kill, slash edge of tomorrow, slash live, die, repeat. Thanks for the intro. I'll take it from here. So this week, I was given Edge of Tomorrow, a title that, like many of you, I had a problem with. Edge of Tomorrow is just a bit meh. It sounds more like the title of a Coldplay album or a coffee table book with photographs of sunrises or the kind of thing someone trying to sound deep would say at a party just before midnight. I do... (laughs) Sorry, <laughs> I would totally do that. You would have sex with that person for sure. Don't Hilar- you just feel like we're hilarious. on the edge of tomorrow? <laughs> clever. So sorry, clever. sorry, sorry. Are you writing it down, Chris? <laughs> uh, I prefer the alternate names that were considered All You Need Is Kill, Live, Die, Repeat, or my personal favourite, Alien Time Belch. Now that's a name. <laughs> That's a joke, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but it's a great name. What about cruise? I thought cruise control would have been a good title for it. Yeah, I think speed to ruin that for everyone forever. What I am about to tell you sounds crazy, but you have to listen to me. Your very lives depend on it. What day is it? Judgment Day. You just came in with the fresh recruits. This is not the end. The invasion will fail, along with every soldier you are sending. We lose this is not everything. The end. Come find me when you wake up. Uh, so, Edge of Tomorrow. Um... It's about a guy who repeats the same day over and over again. So it is based on a Japanese uh, light novel, uh, they call it there, which is basically the Japanese equivalent of a young adult novel uh, here. Uh, It's called All You Need Is Kill. And then the rights were bought uh, by a producer. Uh, I know I'm getting really into like these 
It's like Uber producers. I think I did one recently. This guy's called Irwin Stoff. Listen to the movies he's either produced or exec produced. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Chain Reaction, The Devil's Advocate, The Matrix, Constantine, <laughs> The Blind Side, uh, My Personal Guilty Pleasure, 47 Ronin. Uh, they're all they're all Keanu Reeves films there's apart lot, from one. There's a lot of Keanu Reeves films on his list. They clearly get on. So he gets the rights, and then he asks a guy called uh, Dante Harper to write up a draft script um, for him to sell. And uh, they write the spec script, and um, they sell it to Warner Brothers for three million. And then uh, the genius director that is Doug Lyman comes on board. Um, Having seen uh, Warner Brothers, this this script was on the blacklist of the most uh, loved and yet not yet produced scripts in Hollywood. Do you know what else was on the list that year? This is 2010. Go 2010, on. 2010, Argo, Chronicle, The Hunger Games, Snow White and the Huntsman, Looper, The Butler, Oz the Great and Powerful, and Crazy Stupid Love. Mm. They're all bloody good scripts. Big hitters. Yeah. Well, most of them are but, good. But that, this, I think it was the biggest ask. Uh, script sale that year yeah it was a i mean three million was a lot because this yep. they say don't they the spec script market is kind of dead it doesn't yeah. exist like i was gonna say yeah. because when we were talking about shane black the yeah. other week like it was sort of this record-breaking figure thing, which yeah. was four million but, for the longest good night at the time the highest ever paid but this is this is still a stunning amount of money this for was an 2010 anom- this was an anomaly because not only did they sell it for that amount of money but they also got a clause put into the contract that said that they would get it rolling before cameras within 12 months mm. which didn't happen and they, they then renegotiated that. But again, that's a crazy clause for a film this big. Yeah. To be making it within 12 months, it just seems they did a good deal. Whoever is their lawyer, I hope he got a big bonus. I think he probably did, to well, be honest. They brought on Doug Lyman. And so this is a thing. So we should establish at this point, Doug Lyman is a maverick filmmaker. He's got what they call a workshoppy kind of filmmaking style. Um, he's exciting, as we know from uh, going to college together, V, uh, university. Uh, I love Doug Lyman. Yes. Because Go is one of the greatest <laughs> films. <laughs> I can't believe you've just admitted that to like outside of this friendship We talked circle. about Go on here before, yeah, I, I think. So. Oh, have we? Yeah, yeah. It was I, like I, a I recovered a... memory for me. Like, I've seen it, I've said this so many times because of Alex. And yeah, then the yeah. minute I didn't see Alex anymore, it's like, I that's gone because <laughs> what a waste of my time. And then it just all bubbled back up to the surface like over the last year. It's like, for fuck's sake, why have I seen that film? It's a good 25 film. 25 times. I would watch Go uh, before I went out every Friday night <laughs> or when I got in every Friday night or if we didn't go out, I'd put Go on so everyone could watch it with me. Uh, Go was a big staple of yeah. my university life. Uh, I went to uni with a guy who was a bit strange and didn't he didn't go out and he only had two videos and every night he'd watch them both. I don't remember Alex ever going out, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> One of them was Die Hard, fine. The other was Lee Evans Live. <laughs> he watched that every night for three years, as far as I could tell. And sometimes he'd be watching it when I was on my way out and watching it when I come back, so he'd put it on again. Oh, Bloody nice. loves Lee Evans. <laughs> yeah, you thought I was weird. That's there you go. So yeah. Phil uh, the third year he was called. Phil the third year. Was he? We were all we were all first years, and he was the one third year living in that. So that I don't even know what his last name was. Uh, was oh, of, that is classic you. Sorry. Sometimes I would be pissed though and wander in and watch a bit of Lee Evans just because I could. He's the only one that had a telly. Um, so Dante Harper, Dante Harper wrote this script. Uh, Warner Brothers bought it. Uh, Doug Lyman comes on board, and then Doug Lyman does the Doug Lyman thing where he's like, oh, I'm not sure about this script, and then. Wow, uh, kind of the who's who of screenwriters have a have a shot at this script at some point. So there's a guy called Joe B. Harold uh, who hadn't done much at that point. He's the first guy to have a go. He'd done Awake, um, a Hayden Christensen movie, and then he, he'd just gone on to do, uh, he's doing the new Zack Snyder movie, Army of Darkness, and the Flash movie, 
if it actually happens. So he's still, he's doing that, but he did he had a go. And uh, then screenwriting duo Robert Orkey and Alex Kurtzman had a go. Uh, then they got they were gone. Uh, Jez Butterworth and John Henry Butterworth uh, they had a go. They've uh, well, they'd worked with him on Fair, Doug Lyman on Fair Game. They'd go on to work on Black Mass Spectre and recently Ford versus Ferrari. Simon Kinberg had a go after the Butterworths left. Then Christopher McQuarrie comes on board. So this script was something that Doug Lyman wasn't happy with. And before shooting, despite it being on the blacklist, he discarded two-thirds of Dante Harper's original script. And even after all this, they eight weeks to go until shooting. And in fact, when they started shooting, they still didn't have an ending, which I think... When you watch this movie, the scars are there. In that final third of a movie that's sort of undergone a fair few rewrites, what do you think? I I saw this film twice when it came out, uh, mainly for work purposes, and then obviously watched it again the other day. And both of those times, for some reason, my brain just switches off about an hour, an hour and ten minutes into this, and I can no longer keep up, maybe because I don't care, or maybe it's because I don't understand. So this is the first time I was literally making notes trying to figure out what was happening because yeah. it just loses my interest uh, that this story does. There's a massive logic gap, which I know there's a your friend, Ryan Johnson, oh my and God. my friend. <laughs> I never claimed he was my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you sent us that interview of you two hanging out in a bar or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when great. he was talking about making Looper, he was like, look, you, get, you, know, you can get into a situation where you're explaining how you're doing time travel and you end up doing stick figures and this, this and this. And eventually it's like, it just gets boring. Just do what you're going to do, but stick to the rules. And there's a, I think if I followed the rules of this particular time travel thing... There's a massive gap in logic, which is that if the, if the Omega, which is like the big brain thing, can control time at all, the war is already over because it can control the future. It sees the future. The future is in the future. It can see as far into the future as it needs to. The war is done and you wouldn't have any memory of it. No? This is the big womb-like creature at the end. Oh, like, like a brain, I thought. I called it a womb because there's a really fascinating article about uh, why in a lot of alien invasion movies does our male protagonists often have to enter the mothership. I wonder why that could be. Uh, yeah. Through a small orifice and then destroy it from within. From the inside. Yeah. I've got lots of answers for you. Oh, no, 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 no. I've, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've read them all. Uh, they're great, though. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's a quote from Doug Lyman about that exact subject, not what I said, what you said about time travel. You don't have to talk to scientists to find out that humans will never travel through time. Just talk to a filmmaker who've tried to put time travel in a movie. The story paradoxes that crop up are so taxing mm. that on this film, at one point, the studio suggested we get rid of the whole dying, repeating the day aspect. <laughs> <laughs> so then it's just a war film yeah, with aliens. But you can imagine them saying that going, fuck it. <laughs> Is that part essential or can it just be her training him to fight? <laughs> And, but it is it is a, t- a problem with uh, time travel films, as you say. In Back to the Future, they literally, Marty says, what's that? And Doc says, it's the flux capacitor. It's the thing that makes time travel possible. <laughs> yeah. Bang, job done. Yeah, yeah, In sure. Back to the Future 2, Doc Brown has to pull down a blackboard and do a diagram to explain to Marty, but really the audience, what the hell's going on because they've tied themselves in so many knots. Yeah. And you get that scene several times here. Uh, Noah Taylor is the character yeah. who is there to try and explain to the audience what is happening. Mm. Oh, I wrote that. The bit where he brings out the hologram table. Exactly. I wrote, it's the Back to the Future Blackboard scene. A lot of exposition. Yeah. Which which was when I really had to take notes. And this time I did understand the plot, but I'll be honest, that's the first time I've really been clear on what was happening in the final third of the film. And that, for me, that required notes. 
Yeah, because in this version, what you do has consequences. Otherwise, you can't win a war. So, but nothing... His Tom Cruise's interactions with the other characters doesn't seem to have any consequence. So in one version, you know, he saves someone's life and they don't get squashed by a big spaceship thing. Mm. But that doesn't have any... Be- that person's then alive in the next 20 minutes and that doesn't have a, a, a causation... Causality? Yeah. Help me out. Causality, yeah. Consequential effects on any of the uh, stuff. This is the first time I've heard the word use uh, causality used outside of The Matrix Reloaded by the the architect, where he goes, the causality. (laughs) Your most pertinent question is also the most obvious. Oh, nice. Um, I absolutely agree with you on the fact that I wrote down, it's such a shame because the unit who he joins at the start are such dicks to him initially uh, because he's like a deserter. Mm. Bill Paxton goes, he's a deserter, he's a bit mm. his ship, um, be a dick to him. And they all are. And you never really get to see, there's one moment which I wish there'd been more of where the team get to see him being a badass and he gets that sort of like... Oh, like, yeah, when he runs around in a when circle. When he runs yeah, around the circle of cool. the creator and it's like at the crater and you're like, that's an awesome moment! Yeah. And that's the, a great action scene and doubles as, like, because all, all the best action adds to story. So they, they're going, did you just see that? What the mm. hell's going on? Which is beautiful. Mm. Did any of the action in this film make you cry like action does sometimes? Uh, that scene, yeah. The bit where he's yeah. running around the edge in uh, that and the opening sort of Normandy landings oh, yeah, that's good. thing with the, where they're all down mm. on the ropes. Those two scenes. Mm. Uh, Doug Lyman's a phenomenal action director. Have you ever interviewed him? Yes. I interviewed him for American Made. Ah, me too. Oh, me yeah. Too. I did, well, I say I interviewed him. I did a QA in front mm. of an audience with him. He's uh, he's brilliant. No filter. No. I think uh, I've interviewed him a few times and I've noticed now that the, the, the publicists are sitting in on the interviews because <laughs> he does say whatever he thinks, which is so lovely as, as someone, as a journalist, wanting to mm. have an actual conversation. Yep. Can I, can I quote Emily Blunt, who echoes your sentiment? Because uh, apparently. Uh, in a, a meeting early on, he snapped and uh, at uh, Emily and Tom, and Emily sort of replied to him, "Easy, I've never made a movie like this before." And he said, "And this is from Doug Lyman himself." And I said, "Well, neither have I." And apparently, the room ground to a halt, and his producer Erwin Stoff told him later that it was the most incredible thing he'd ever heard anyone say. The director telling the stars of the movie that he had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> But we'll see you in the morning. But Emily Blunt <laughs> that's a, that's does a dangerous say, thing. Emily Blunt says he has no filter when it comes to being honest. You can waste so much time with politeness and diplomacy on set. That's what's so refreshing about Doug. It's funny though how far they got away. So I have again, I've read the source material that this is based on. I read the I read the Japanese book. Oh wow. Yeah, and um not in when it was in Japanese. Oh well, that's <laughs> impressed. <laughs> um and there, the love story between uh, Rita and and the the character that that's now called Cage um, makes more sense. And and to get out of the time loop, uh, one of them has to die, mm-hmm. and so he has to kill her. Well, and it ta- it carries a lot more emotional re- resonance. And I'm surprised. I, the, the, the way I read it, it's he doesn't know that he has to kill her initially. What happens is like they she attacks him because she knows one of them has to die. And so she attacks him and he defends himself and ends up killing her. And then she's like, well, it had to happen. One of us had to die. Uh, And he's like, I love you. I'm like, this is really powerful. Mm. Why is it not in the movie? If you're struggling with the ending, just go, that's fucking great. Yeah. Put that in your movie. Should we talk about the aliens? Yeah, the aliens are good. What are they called? Mimics. Yeah. Yeah, the mimics. You've got the drones, the alphas and the omega. 
Yeah. Um, how did you feel about the design of the aliens? Or sketchy, as in I couldn't. I don't. I like the training montage where they replicate the mimics with uh, mechanical arms. That's cool. But the actual aliens themselves, because they are arms and bits and whatever everywhere, and it's hard to look at them. I just sort of switched off because I couldn't. They don't need like a cute face for me to engage with them, but it didn't mm. feel particularly threatening. I think they were described by the uh, designer as black spaghetti. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I think it's very difficult to actually, the the foot soldier mimics, the ones that are doing all the killing, yeah. um, they're, I, they don't have faces. They're just they're sort of like... They're just arms? Yeah, just lots of tentacles. Yeah. The alphas, um, the thing that works for me about the alphas and really, really works about the alphas is the noise that they emit where from their face and their mouth, which sounds like a furnace, you know that? Oh, yeah. Oh, that constant furnace sound. Love that design. For me, I felt like they didn't, they didn't, the design of them made them feel like they didn't carry any heft or any weight in the way that sometimes those Transformers films can feel like that. And so the action just felt like a bit of a blur going in front of me. I was finding it quite hard to actually um, keep up with what was happening in those scenes. So yeah. I wasn't moved. In the same way Alex was. By and there's a the lot action. of what I will call a trench admin. So there's about a 10 to 15, not 15 minutes, that's rude. There's a sequence where Tom Cruise is trying to teach Emily Blunt what's going to happen in the trench in order to fight their way out of it. <laughs> and she can't quite memorize it because it's complicated. And we just cut back and back and back. And she's just trying to remember oh, so I step left and then duck right and whatever. And it's like, oh, this is, um, <laughs> yeah, trench admin. But I did like the fact that a lot of the moments made me laugh where, and I wasn't mm. expecting to find it funny but, and I'm assume, I assume that's done on purpose. Yeah, so 100%. when he rolls under the truck to find Emily Blunt and gets squashed <laughs> by the truck, that's really funny. That's really good. A lot of the deaths are and when he keeps breaking limbs in the training sequence yeah. and she just walks she over just and puts him. a bullet in him <laughs> over and over and over again. I think that's great. I think, And I think that a lot of that was Chris McQuarrie. I think when he came on board, Tom Cruise was like, we need to really up the comedy in this so it doesn't feel quite so bleak. Do you think but... he was on purpose when he first wakes up after he's been sent packing by Brendan Gleeson and he's like, where am I? And then the camera moves up and there's this massive sign that says, Heathrow. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's so huge. But they're also playing on the audience's knowledge that Tom Cruise is good at everything. And the, and so to suddenly see him bad at a bunch of things in the first half of this film, it's funny and fun yeah, to it, the audience. But then I did find it confusing because the montage, I see Tom Cruise in a uniform and I'm just like, oh, there's a hero. And mm. he's, a, he's a soldier to me because he's wearing a uniform. And I'm, there's so much to pay attention to in the montage. Then when he says to Brendan Gleeson, I've never been trained for this. I'm just a PR man. It's like, oh, okay. It just took me a while to adjust. Like I, I could have done with something in the montage that makes it clear that you can wear the uniform without having had any combat training. I've never been in the army, so I don't know if that's how it works. Like, um, yeah, that's, so, how, that's how it works, yeah. That is how it yeah, works, yeah, yeah. isn't it? You have to kill, what, three or four people <laughs> before you get a uniform? But I, but I thought they made it pretty clear in the dialogue, <laughs> excuse me, that he's got no skills, that he's a coward, that he... That, I just don't buy it because it's Tom Cruise. But that was the like, whole selling point in the movie. The whole sell was like, you see Tom Cruise not in hero mode and yeah. he, he plays this snivelling like person who's like, I don't want to go to the front, I don't want to go to the front. Why is Brendan Gleeson so... Hate, oh, why did you hate him I've so? got a theory. Great, because at the start, it's not, he just basically goes, I'm going to send you there because you're going to yeah. die. Listen to this, listen to this. And I didn't steal it off the internet or hear it from a man. I made it up myself. Are you listening, Chris? Are you ready? Yep. So, towards, <sighs> oh, shut up. At the beginning, Tom Cruise, I don't want to go to the front. I don't want to video this and thinks he's got out of it. 
And then Tom Cruise is like, oh, I'm glad we've cleared that up because, you know, I don't want to go to the front and video acts of heroism. And Brendan Gleeson shakes his head and he goes, you won't. Cut to, smash cut to, waking up at Heathrow, right? Well, no, because first, Brendan Gleeson shouts, arrest that man! Shut up! That's inconsequential to what I'm trying to say. Right, sorry. So he said, oh, you won't. Remember that, right? Is this, sorry, just for clarity, are you rewriting the opening scene? No, that's what happens. He says, Tom Cruise goes, glad we could clear that up. I don't want to film acts of heroism. But we don't smash cut to Heathrow at that point. Oh, no, yeah, that's true. I'm just telling you. that twice. Right, yeah, I'm just telling you he runs out and then Brendan... Maybe you should smash cut to... I love a smash cut. Anyway, smash cut to whatever or not. Do you know, I read somewhere that smash cut isn't actually a thing and shouldn't be included in a script because it means exactly the same as cut to. No, it doesn't. Okay, I'm just... I'm just, I'm just saying what I read on the internet. You can look it up yourself. Anyway, shut up. Right. So he says, oh, no, you won't, because the same thing has happened to Brendan Gleeson and he's doing it all on purpose and we're actually in his loop. Whoa. So he's saying, oh, no, you won't film acts of heroism. I know what's going to happen to you because I've lived <gasps> this day a million times mm, before. Good. Thank you. And that's why at the end of the film, when it randomly resets to just the perfect moment so that everyone doesn't die, that's why Tom Cruise wakes up on his way to... Whitehall yeah. to see Brendan Gleeson because now we're in in his loop and he's done it right. Well, D- Doug Lyman has been yeah, a had... loop within a loop. Doug wow, Lyman. it took us a while to get there because of a lot of interruptions, Chris. <laughs> but wow, that's great. <laughs> Doug Lyman has claimed that the, the sequel that they've been working on for a long time now is part prequel and part sequel. So I wonder if that will be drawn into it in some oh way. God, if I figured it out, I'd be so pleased. I mean, well, no, this is a really what, good theory. This is Thanks. what Christopher McQuarrie said on that subject. He said the sequel will explain the ending of the first film. His actual tweet that he put out, the end of Edge 1 will finally make complete sense. I'm, like, I'm right. I feel like I might be this right. This is what he's saying. And um, Doug Lyman said that the uh, new idea is incredible and that him and Chris McQuarrie uh, sealed themselves in a room and had a screaming match for two hours about what the plot should be, but came out with an With my fa- idea. A fantastic <laughs> idea, yeah. And uh, Chris is on next week to tell you how great you are. <laughs> Not this, Chris. <laughs> Although that carries more weight. Sorry, Chris. Uh, and what were your feelings? I mean, it's essentially, it was sort of sold as a, as a two-hander. What did you think about Emily Blunt as Rita? I think she does a marvellous job for being greased up like a fucking kebab shop counter for most of the film. When you meet her and she's in a yoga pose for no reason, and she is gleaming and it's like, I wonder why. Like, I understand she's supposed to be sweating, but it's a prodigious amount of sweat. Mm. And the reason she's so gleaming is to show off her, like, great bod. I get all of that. But I do think it's a shame that we need to repeat that shot constantly. They do They do seem very pleased with that shot, yeah, don't they? they? Do, yeah. In a way. Oh, yeah. oh, the downward dog. Yeah. Mm, is that what it is? No. Or is it cat pose? <laughs> I don't do yoga. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a version of the plank, another name beginning with PL that I can't remember. But, yeah, it's uh, pl- flat. Plonk? Uh, plonk. <laughs> it's a plonk. It's a plonk. I've just go. been working on my plonk. There we go. I don't even uh, need to do yoga to work that out. But, uh, plonk. I thought she was very good. Mm. Not Did just it... for managing the bucket load of lube that she had to deal with. I did quite graphic here. I really didn't, I didn't notice. Did anyway, you know? she's back for the sequel uh, uh, as well. She's coming back. Um, the budget, uh, Doug Lyman said he would like the budget for his sequel to be smaller. Uh, than the original. He says uh, the smart way to make a sequel is with a slightly lower budget, not a bigger budget, because what people love so much about The Edge of Tomorrow is the characters and that it's character-driven. Um, mm. um, oh, I don't I, know about that. I think it's tougher in this one, but certainly with Groundhog Day, they filmed they filmed all the different scenes on the same day. 
which said it made it so much easier for the extras, for Bill Murray. You know, each version of that scene, each different day, they filmed them all on the same time. And I think you can do that. I don't if think you're it's smart. for the extras, though. I think that's big, just convenience. If you're in a location, you just do every sure. moment in that location. But right? they had to do the same. It's really good in Groundhog Day when I was paying attention more this time to the, to the extras all moving in exactly the same spots every time in the background. I've never noticed that before. Mm. So, yeah, I'm. I feel like if you're smart with the way you structure your production on a time travel movie, you can be smart with clever with your budget. It's just this was obviously a bit of a mess going into it in terms of not knowing what the ending was. Right. Yeah, exactly. And also Doug Lyman sort of being Doug Lyman. Apparently he actually got uh, on Mr. and Mrs. Smith, he got Simon Kimberg to draft 40 or 50 different endings for Mr. and Mrs. Smith before filming the original version. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the alternative ending that Christopher McQuarrie wrote for this film, but it's so long and complicated. I'm not going to read it out. Okay. It's too. It's, I was going to, and it's just like I don't really understand. We it. can do an abbreviated version. The bottom line is that they are told not to kill an alpha because that will reset the day when they're attacking yep. Paris. One of the soldiers kills an alpha, and it resets to them attacking Norm- the Normandy landing sequence again. Only this time, the aliens know they're coming. Yep. The, and they, uh, the, the, the subtext is that the aliens are going to kill them. Okay. Oh. But the problem was, he said, you were so exhausted by the time you got to that point with, yes. with that loop. Yeah, and he was like, the best thing to do would be do what all comedies do, or most comedies do, which is everything reverts to how it was at the start. Mm. Which is kind of what happens. Right, should we do our bits? Yeah, go on then. Uh, what is your favourite scene, Vicky? Um, a caravan park in northern France. <laughs> <laughs> you don't see that every day. No. So when we finish storming the beaches of Normandy, it's just so brilliant to see movie star, movie star, dilapidated caravan park. Yeah. It reminded me of my childhood. Me Car- too. Caravan parks in Brittany. I was like, yeah. being there, being there, live that dream. Uh, Alex, favourite scene? Uh, I've already mentioned it though, uh, but it was uh, running around the crater, being a mm. badass in his uh, armoured suit. Tom Cruise, love that moment. Uh, aside from that, it is the multiple hilarious deaths. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm going with that latter one. I think I counted. I think we see Tom Cruise die 22 times. And kills seven to thirteen are the ones where Rita just keeps shooting him in the head <laughs> for having a broken back, broken body, broken leg, and then even when he says he's okay, she shoots him in the head. <laughs> That's good. Uh, MVW Alex, uh, it's the Lyman and Cruz combo. I just genuinely think Doug Lyman is a really exciting filmmaker, not just because of Go, but because I love the films he makes. I love the fact that he. What does he say about uh, the way he makes movies? Oh, I hope I can find it. It's just a really. A really nice quote. Uh, oh, I can't find it. He basically goes, look, I don't make movies for a studio. I make them for me and posterity. That's why I don't care what a studio thinks. So uh, he wanted to call it um, Live, Die, Repeat. And it was a studio exec who called it Edge of Tomorrow. They were like, we're calling it Edge of Tomorrow. And he, when it came out, and it didn't do as well as was expected, he says uh, he really laid into the executive at Warner Brothers who'd insisted that Edge of Tomorrow was the better title. I was like, it's clearly not. You were wrong. I committed the cardinal sin of telling somebody in Hollywood they were wrong. Like, literally. I ended up having to call the person and apologise for pointing out that they were wrong. However... They did change it to Live, Die, Repeat, and the sequel is definitely going to be called Live, Die, Repeat, Repeat. <laughs> yeah, I he, read that. But he, he cannot let it lie. No. <laughs> and I'll be interested to see if that does end up being the title, because that's a crap title. Live, uh, Die, Repeat and Repeat? Yeah, that's yeah, a terrible title. Do you live, Die, Repeat terrible. is cool, rule of three. You can't just stick repeat on the end <laughs> I like all you Live, Die, Repeat again. 
All You Need Is Kill is a great title, but yeah. he said he didn't like it because he was making a comedy action movie and it doesn't feel like the tone of movie he was making. No, it doesn't. I think it does because All You Need Is Kill is kind of like a funny play on kill. Um, As in like All You Need Is Love? Yeah. But kill? Yeah. Okay. I think there's comedy in it. I just like it as a title. Okay. Uh, oh, wait, sorry. No, I meant All You Need Is Kill Repeat. <laughs> uh, my MVW is Rubbish Tom Cruise. Because we never get to see that on screen. He's, sca- he's scared. He's a coward. He's bullied by Brendan Gleeson. And I just think it's really fun to play with his image in the way that they did at the start of this film. To the point that I'm almost a bit disappointed when he gets good. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a fun performance, I think. All right. What would you change, if anything, Vicky? I've said my change. Yeah. Brendan Gleeson. Oh, no, you won't. Smash cuts. <laughs> and you're in his loop. So yeah. all of that, that. Yep, that piece of movie gold. Mm -hmm. Alex, what would you change? Uh, What would I change? Uh, I would change um, the ending. Uh, There's a couple of reasons. I don't like the Paris attack because... Oh, do you know why I don't like that? Because we've been to Normandy, then we go to Whitehall. Yeah, but listen, and then it's like, oh, we've got to go to Paris, and I hate going back on myself. To me, you should have said, we'll go to Scotland, which is not as visually arresting as the Louvre, perhaps, Mm. but you know when you miss your stop on the bus and you've Mm. got to go back on yourself? That makes me fucking furious. Same feeling. Okay. Okay. You happy with that, Alex? Well, I mean, I I don't like the Paris bit for another reason, because it basically... We get, he sort of goes, we need more men. Like, we need more men to actually make this attack. So he goes back to his unit and he convinces them. He Mm. goes to great lengths to go, look... Trust me, this I'm living the same day again, and there and that, he's like he proved it to me. Everyone goes, all right, wow, let's do this. And then half of them, when they get to Paris, die off camera. You don't see how whatever happens to like any of them. I think like two of them like get a big sort of moment where they commit suicide to well, they they sacrifice themselves to kill the aliens, but everyone else just disappears off camera. But that's the the other problem is after that, and it happens throughout the movie. I just wish someone had written a different line for Emily Blunt every time Tom Cruise shows up yeah. to the training thing. I just cannot deal with, have I got something on my face, soldier? I'm like, <laughs> what is that line? Like, Why isn't it like, what the fuck are you looking at? <laughs> yes, what the fuck are you looking at? A great line. Is there something you want? Great line. Is there something on my face, soldier? It's just such a laboured line for that moment. Do you not think? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going to agree with all your changes. Okay. Um uh, but also, yeah, just we've said it before, but the nonsense with the title, it was very confusing as an online journalist covering this film because when they first announced it, we had to call it in Edge of Tomorrow in all our titles. Then we had to call it Edge of Tomorrow dot dot live, die, repeat in all our titles. Then we had to call it Live, Die, Repeat brackets Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> and I think they're both terrible titles. And I think All You Need is Kill is a terrible title as well. I think they're all three bad. I wish they'd come up with a better title. I don't know what that is. Alien Time Belch. <laughs> <laughs> That's the title right there. Uh, any any other business on this one? Uh, I was looking through uh, IMDb trivia. Yes, I was as well, Alex. <laughs> and I think I know what's coming. Did you see this, Vicky? I nearly messaged you. Life is so short. <laughs> Do you want to see it rather than have it told you? Yeah. Why don't you Why don't you read out, Vicky, what's on IMDb <laughs> trivia for this fucking film? <laughs> when you read out what you're seeing, Vicky, I'm so glad I didn't read that at home. This is uh, from an unnamed source, actually, which is interesting. Yes, Alex Zane said this was one of the best science fiction films of 2014. This is on IMDb trivia. So, Alex, um, are you now adding your own trivia to IMDb? I was, 
<laughs> I was as surprised as you when I turned on my laptop only to discover that I have made it onto IMD Trivia, uh, a, a trivia section Chris frequently describes as full of bullshit. Yes. <laughs> and um, it, they, it asks you underneath the trivia whether you found this useful and you yeah. can click yes or no. This is the first time I've ever clicked that button <laughs> to say no. <laughs> Remarkable. I did host the premiere for this movie. Right. The premiere for this movie, that's... I, I'm assuming it came from there, um, but um, it was uh, where they did the premiere at six or five or six a.m. We had to be down at the IMAX in uh, Waterloo to do the premiere because they did the premiere at like seven in the morning uh, because it was to promote the movie. Tom Cruise did, you know, he he likes a big event uh, to launch a movie, and um, he did three premieres in the same day. So he went from London to Paris, and then I think they crossed the Atlantic to New York mm. and did one in New York all within twenty four hours. So not going back on yourself, though, so not frustrated. Mm. Which, as Emily Blunt said, it's easy for him because he can wear the same suit. <laughs> I had to get redressed three times for these buggers. Yeah. Uh, good. All right. Are you ready for a quiz? Yeah. I'm ready to be humiliated. Let's do it. No, I've got, I've got money on you this week, V. Great. I'm going to call this the uh, repetition quiz because uh, these films are obviously about repeating the same day over and over again. The repetition quiz. Exactly. I'm just testing in case it's like repeating what he said. I just wanted to get in there quickly. Oh, shit. One nil already. Oh, shit. One nil already. Um, So uh, the answer to these questions will involve repeating a word more than once. Okay. You'll see. So the first question is, what 1968 kids film is about a flying car? Chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Oh, my God. You've got it. So you understand it, I would say, at this point. Uh, Who is the actor who played the equaliser? Denzel, Denzel Washington. <laughs> Robert Robinson. <laughs> he also starred in the original Wicker Man. Um, oh, Edward Woodward. Oh, yeah, correct. <laughs> Edward Woodward. It's not actually the same word, but fine. Wood and wood is the same it's word. Wood, uh, wood, wood, you know, wood. Ward is wood. said twice in his name. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh shit. Wood. That's not what you meant. That is. It uh, is now in hindsight. Hindsight's 2020. This is a small island in the South Pacific. Boutros, Boutros, Garley. Bora, Bora. Yes, Vicky. Boutros. <laughs> is that one of the answers? I'm getting in early. Boutros, Boutros, Garley. Uh, this uh, 1997 film is about a lawyer who has to tell the truth. Liar, liar. Oh, yeah. fuck. Yes. Damn it! Vicky's back in it. It's two all. Oh, God. Uh, this guy hosted Mastermind for 25 Magnus years. Magnus Magnuson. Yes, she's oh. pulled ahead. <laughs> Not movie related, is it? Uh, no, it's it's the repetition <laughs> right, quiz right, right, about right, words right, repeating right. themselves. Movies, movies, um, what is the flame grilled chicken at Nando's Perry called? Perry. Yeah. <laughs> I can't help but feel that was that was more of a Vicky yeah, question. I was never not going to get that. <laughs> Are they going to take my black card away? <laughs> Give it to me. You can uh, you can sing this answer if you want. Uh, what is the title? New York, New York. <laughs> I nearly did that one, but it isn't. What is the title of the Crash Test Dummies' biggest hit? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not sounding like it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's not it. Uh, Alex got in there first. Ah! I did. Sure. I did really need Fortums, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> Phil and Gary Neville both played for Manchester United. Neville, Neville. Yes! That's their dad. Oh, really? Yeah, their dad's called Neville Neville. How do you know that? I don't know. Uh, 
what is the title of the TV sequel to Life on Mars? Oh, uh, oh um, after Ashes to Ashes. Correct. Funk to Funky. <laughs> exactly. Uh, final question. Uh, Shane Black wrote and directed this comedy thriller from... Kids nice guys! Bang bang. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, have I won? Have I won? Uh, the final score is... Alex, three, Vicky, seven. Yes! That's bullshit. <laughs> it's not seven. The book do not lie. You just made that up. That, went, that, went, that was not right. I got more than Don't three. silence oh, me. I know, I, listen, don't silence me. Yeah, all right. You have, you have your victory as hollow as it is. Mm-mm. He's not a very good loser, is he? <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Only one of us is an IMD trivia. <laughs> <laughs> Along with the fact that the car they drive out of the French caravan park is a Renault Spass. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, a car that... Um, Emily Blunt crashed into a tree while shooting and nearly killed both of them. And apparently they were so full of adrenaline uh, and so close to death, they both started laughing hysterically. (laughs) (laughs) The verdict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! Ooh. Okay. So, uh, I picked the films, didn't I? Oh, yeah, so uh, who wants to go first? That's why we're both looking at you with these big eyes, sort of going, Chris, guide us. Alex, uh, loser, uh, you can go first. As in you want me to announce the loser because that's the only way that sentence just made sense. (laughs) I think I'll go with the winner, classically. So that's why I'm starting. Um, I said it, I think, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast or whenever you announced these movies or maybe we were just talking about it as friends. It was on the podcast. I said I think I've watched Groundhog Day too many times to actually want to watch it again or enjoy it again. And that turned out to be the case. I, it's a great film and I appreciate a lot about it, but I've just watched it so many times that I'm bored of it. And it was a bit of a slog going through it again, um, even with the special analytical glasses you gave us on, Chris. So I'd only seen Edge of Tomorrow once before and I really enjoyed it. I think it works both as an action movie and an interesting weird concept movie and I love Tom Cruise in it and I think it's great and I'm picking Edge of Tomorrow surprisingly interesting Vicky um, I didn't enjoy Groundhog Day as much as I expected to and I enjoyed Edge of Tomorrow slash Live Die Repeat loads more than I thought I was going to it was really good fun but the f- I think we'll still be talking about Groundhog Day in 10, 20, 30 years time um, and the script is just so clever that I'll have to pick Groundhog Day mm. <gasps> Chris loves it when it falls to him. Don't go power hungry, mad, crazy. Don't get peckish. Yeah, don't go power peckish. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you alien time belt. What I like about Groundhog Day is it isn't just funny and it isn't just clever. I think it does truly capture the weight of time and how it it, it weighs upon Phil. And, and it does, it's a film that... Although it's a light comedy, it does cause you to think about your own mortality. That's what I found myself doing this time. I also think it's really clever that you actually don't want him... There's not many romantic comedies where you really don't want him to get the girl at the start of the film, and by the end you do. Um, So while I like Edge of Tomorrow, I don't really think feel like it's about anything and because of that depth uh, that Groundhog Day has, as well as the jokes, and the fact that it's one of the best films of all time, I'm going Groundhog Day. I'm happy with that. I I think... (laughs) I think it would be a weird one to pick the movie that was inspired by Groundhog Day <laughs> as the winner. So, yeah, Groundhog Day is a good winner. Well done. Groundhog Day is our winner this week. So, looking ahead uh, to the future, whose choices? They're my choices. Um, so, I would like to give... Um, Alex, you are going to have American Psycho. 
Thank you very much. I'm a big fan of that movie. <laughs> that mm. doesn't surprise That's weirdly anyone. fitting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? Um, and uh, Chris, you will have the rules of attraction. Ah, oh, I like those choices, Vicky. Okay, then. Well, uh, that is it. Next week, rules of attraction versus American Psycho. That should be a pleasant episode. <laughs> yeah. Those two films are a lot of fun. Uh, great. Well, listen, uh, we're going to say goodbye now. Uh, but if you would uh, like to rate reviewers, we're hugely appreciative of appreciative of um, all your reviews. Uh, so uh, do subscribe as well on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can get in touch on Twitter at ClashPod. Uh, that is it for us. Um, all that is uh, left to do is say uh, welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common. Go head-to-head to see which one does it better on this episode. And so on and so on. It's, <laughs> it was a good idea, Chris. Just like Groundhog Day. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye! This was a Stakhanov production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.